I want to live, I want to give I've been a miner for a heart of gold This is Carl Zinsmeister with Sweet Charity, a series of stories about how private giving solves public problems, adapted from the Almanac of American Philanthropy. I was recently invited to give a series of speeches to philanthropists, business leaders, and members of parliament in Australia. While there, I was interviewed by an old friend of mine on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Here is our chat about the nature of charitable action in the U.S. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Private giving to help solve public problems. Can it play a positive and powerful force for change within contemporary Western democracies? Can Australia and the world learn from the world beaters? I'm talking about the Americans. Now, for answers, let's hear from a leading American authority on the power of private giving and voluntary action to solve public problems. Carl Zinsmeister is an executive at the Philanthropy Roundtable in Washington. He was Chief Domestic Policy Advisor to President George W. Bush and Director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. He's in Australia as a guest of Philanthropy Australia, which has held its annual summit at Parliament House in Canberra this week. Carl, welcome to Between the Lines. It is great to be here. And I should stress from the outset, you're my former boss. Well, I'm, I'm farmer colleague is maybe more accurate, <laughs> but yeah, we sure had a good time working together. Okay. Now, how do you think philanthropy makes a real difference to someone's life? Well, it's just a reality in the U.S. Philanthropy is one of the most important ways we solve problems, and it doesn't have the same volume of dollar spending that, for instance, the, the government does, but I um, compare uh, philanthropy to venture capital, and venture capital, as you know, has long levers. It has, it has the ability to have a big effect with a relatively modest investment if you do it right, and that's really what philanthropy does. It often breaks sclerotic blockages in society and finds new solutions. Still, the critics persist and uh, they all say that uh, charity amounts to merely a drop in the bucket, uh, that only generosity aimed directly at the poor should count as philanthropic. How would you respond to those concerns? Well, first of all, the sheer size of the sector, Tom, uh, means that it's influential. Americans voluntarily give away about $630 billion every single year in Australian dollars. And, you know, even if some portion of that goes to art and another portion of that goes to, you know, hospitals, a significant portion of that goes to direct poverty alleviation. And the beautiful thing about philanthropy is it's non-guided. You know, it, it really is a bottom-up phenomenon. People decide what matters to them. They, they, they decide what the problems are in their neighborhoods and their areas, and they devote resources to that. And, of course, in addition to money, they devote time, which is sometimes even more valuable. But, you know, it's not a drop in the bucket. It's a massive, massive movement and uh, really creates all kinds of uh, effects in the U.S. And I think that you've made the point that in the United States, uh, philanthropic aid of all sorts sent overseas now substantially exceeds the official foreign aid budget of the yeah. U.S. government. Yeah, it's just one of those secrets that nobody realizes. You know, everyone knows that the, the U.S. gives away about $50 billion a year to the poorest of the poor in, in places like Africa th as a government. But what they don't realize is that we give about half again as much as that, more like 60 or 70 or $80 billion every year as individuals. Now, the reason we don't know that is partly because those gifts are done in the form of $50 checks and $25 checks. And like you say, those are drops in the bucket. But what people have to remember is that if there are hundreds and thousands 
thousands and millions of drops in the bucket, you, you aggregate this into large flows. And that's really the way philanthropy works. Another counter-argument, Carl, is that relying on personal generosity means that vulnerable people fall through the cracks because, you know, this is the argument, philanthropy allows government to try to get out of its obligations. You know, I just don't worry about that. The historical record in my lifetime in the U.S. is that when I was born, the government consumed uh, less than a quarter of the total GDP. So of, of all our energy and our wealth and our production, about a quarter of it was dedicated to government. That's now up to 36%, Tom. Extraordinary. So there's a tremendous growth of government. And anybody mm-hmm. who thinks the government is going to atrophy and blow away <laughs> and disappear is not <laughs> following history, I'm afraid. So there's uh, plenty of room for philanthropy to get in there and, and solve problems without pushing government aside. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's no question that America is a world beater when it comes to philanthropy. Uh, let's look at these numbers. The Nonprofit sector in the U.S. employs 11% of the U.S. workforce, supplies about 6% of GDP. Now, am I right in saying that most of the money comes not from foundations or corporations, but by far individuals? Another completely unknown story yet. You know, all of the press clips, as you know, Tom, are about the Bezos and Gateses mm-hmm. and Buffetts of the world. And they are part of American philanthropy, but they're actually a very tiny part. Only 18% of all of the gifts that are made in the year in America are made through those foundations set up by wealthy men and women. And the rest come as gifts from individuals. And the average gift is about $4,000 in Australian. And again, there might be a critic who says, well, you're not going to change the world with $4,000. What good does that do? But again, you have to multiply this by this massive base. You have more than 100 million givers giving four grand each. That becomes a big hidden iceberg beneath that tip that you see in all of the reporting. And to what extent does American generosity vary from region to region? Oh, it's tremendous. Big variations and very surprising. I often have fun when I give my talks. I show what I call a heat map. And the more per capita giving you have in an area, the hotter it will appear on this map. And first I ask people to guess, you know, where do you think most of the generous givers are in the U.S.? And of course, most people say New York or San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And those obviously are wealthy cities with lots of people. And yes, a good deal of charitable money flows out of them. But on a fair per capita basis, you know, how much of the money available to you? Are you willing to give away to other people? The places that are just red hot in the U.S. are the Bible Belt Mm. and Mormon America, specifically Utah. Just very, very clear and interesting. Okay, so religion shapes American philanthropy. I understand that. But as you also know, religion in America, indeed across the Western world, is in decline. To the extent that those trends continue, does that mean that charities could be in trouble? They very much so. I worry about this. Other people worry about this a lot. We have, in the last few years, Tom, seen inexplicable dips. For literally generations, the, the giving rate has been steady as a rock. It goes through recessions. It goes through wars. It's always surprised social observers that it doesn't really vary much. All of a sudden, it's starting to drop. And we're wondering why. So I, I did some investigation on this over the last year, and it does correlate quite clearly with the drop in religious practice. This is a big, big motivating factor for a lot of Americans. I, I, it may sound like an artifact to many Australians, but lots of Americans still take tithing very seriously. In fact, we've discovered some people that are called reverse tithers, where they live on 10% of their income and they give away 90%. So those people are very influential. They do all kinds of marvelous things in the human services sector. And if they lose their motivation, if, if religion is no longer a prod and an encouragement to do this, it will be a different country. My guest is Carl Zinsmeister, a senior executive at the Philanthropy Roundtable in Washington. He's also a former senior domestic policy advisor to President George W. Bush. I mentioned earlier, he's my former boss at the American Enterprise Institute. This was, uh, what, the Gingrich Revolution, the Clinton era impeachment, 
and yet to think the size of government has actually grown since then. Yeah, it's really just a kind of a one-way ratchet, and people worry about that. You know, everyone knows, Tom, that there's the government out there that solves problems, and people increasingly know that there's a corporate sector that solves a lot of problems, a lot of things that used to be done by government, delivering packages and mm. building roads and running uh, all kinds of services. It's now done by the corporations. But what they forget is that there's a third sector. There's a third sector in between those two, which in America we call civil society, sometimes the independent sector, or philanthropy, nonprofit work. And that third sector is very, very important in many ways. And one of them is a political way. I mean, you mentioned our political magazine. Well, you know, people on the government side, they wear uniforms and have badges and guns. They can tell you and order you to do things. People in the corporate sector uh, use the profit motive to in incentivize. The, uh, the people in the independent sector, they just have to convince you. They have to just give you something that you value enough that you will voluntarily do it. And that is a very good protector of civil liberties, of individual conscience. Do you think that's perhaps why Australia treats philanthropy different than, say, the Americans? You know, I've speculated a lot about that as I've been here this week and talked to people. And one of the things I was surprised by is uh, one of the things that clearly motivates American philanthropy is the, is the frontier tradition of living in a place where the government is minimal or non-existent and you just do things yourself. Mm. And I thought, you know, when I get to Australia, I'm going to see that too because that's another frontier society. And the thing that surprised me is that is much less present here, that, that ethic of just, you know, you don't call the government, you just go out with your neighbors and fix things that is so strong in the U.S. is less apparent here. And somebody said something very interesting. They said, you know, well, the Australian frontier is much more recent. There have always been telegraph lines and often railroads and other things too. Even though, yeah, you were out there, you weren't alone. You still had a connection back to civilization. Whereas when you were in Louisiana in 1720, you were on the moon. There was no connection anywhere else. You could not rely on the cavalry to ride over the hill and save you. So neighbors got in the habit of fixing their own problems organically on their own. Mm. Many Australians would respond and say, we have a, a very profound spirit of uh, volunteer work. Mm. And we were very generous in the aftermath of big uh, tragedies like the Boxing Day tsunami. Uh, this was in uh, 2004. Australia helped lead the effort. So there is a counter argument there, Carl. There is. And it's certainly true. And I, I don't want, want to make this into a comparative thing. And, and I'm absolutely not prescriptive or missionary about, you know, everyone else should practice philanthropy as the Americans do. To be honest, Tom, I tell people it's irrational. It's this very bizarre cultural artifact that the Americans do this, that they voluntarily have about a trillion dollars of transfer every year between the cash they give away and the value of their labor. You, you talk to French or German or Asian people about this and they look at you like you're from Mars. Mm. It just does not seem like, like sensible behavior to them. And Australia and Canada and Britain, the rest of the Anglosphere are, are much closer to the American tradition. But we really are the exceptions in the world on this. Yes, indeed. Look at the numbers here. This is Andrew Forrest. He's a prominent mining magnate in Western Australia. He and his family donate $400 million of their fortunes to a raft of health in education causes, 400 million, but get a lot of this, Bill Gates donates $70 billion for the eradication of malaria. Warren Buffett leaving the bulk of his $100 billion to good causes. This is from the Canberra Times in a profile piece of you. That's an extraordinary discrepancy, isn't there? You know, I've talked about this today uh, a little bit about there's something very odd about the American business structure. It, American business, as I think some of our listeners know, is very different than the way business tends to be practiced in Asia or in Europe, where it's much more of an institutional thing, corporate thing. In, in the U.S., 
the dream of every business person is to own their own business and to grow it up from nothing. And there's this very individualistic kind of uh, inventive uh, business ethic. And part of it is once you make it big, if you make it big and you're lucky, the first thing every American mogul thinks of is, how am I going to make somebody else rich? How can I go out there and do philanthropy? Now, it's not always just a, I'm a great guy who wants to help the human race. Sometimes it's a competitive thing. You know, I, I kicked the butts of all of my competitors in the muffler business and the, or the chicken sandwich business. Now I'm going to kick their butts in philanthropy too. Um, I mean, that's part of it. But there is this definite in instinct among the business class that as soon as you get rich, you help somebody else get rich, you give it away. Mm. And we should stress that neither Gates nor Buffett is leaving a significant amount of money in relative terms to their children, right? Let's talk about this specifically because it's shocking, really. Mm. So as you pointed out, the, the, the Gates fortune in total, I'm increasing every year, but it it's looks, looks like he's going to be about a $90 billion family fortune. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Gates have said that they're going to leave each of their three children $10 million. It's lovely. It's not a trivial sum. $10 million. $10 million. But do the math on that. 10 mm. times three children is $30 million stays in the Gates family. $90 billion minus 30 goes elsewhere. So <laughs> there will be no second generation Gates dynasty. That's just the way wealth tends to be handled in, in the U.S. And Buffett, we have to say, supports higher taxes on the wealthy. Mm. You know, the great thing about philanthropy is you don't have to be of just one point of view. I, I don't want people to think that this is a this yeah. is a big conspiracy of conservative, you know, white male men to do. Philanthropy is as varied as the rest of society. There are crazy left-wing people and crazy right-wing people. There are people who are not political at all. There are religious people. There are hippies, you name it. <laughs> Beyond left and right. <laughs> Carl, an absolute pleasure having you on Radio National. Likewise. For Sweet Charity, this has been Carl Zinsmeister. And for more insight from the Almanac of American Philanthropy, find the book at Amazon.